Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. We're heading into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published June 14th, 2022. It's part three of our exploration of the cauldron. Let's ladle some out here. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, we were out for a little bit, but now we're back. And you know what we're back with? More cauldrons. Our brains are like pots, and those pots are full of pots, and the pots have pots in them, and it's, uh, it never stops. I know. My, my wife is still uh, teasing me about this. It's like, you guys are still doing episodes about cauldrons and soup and i'm like yeah there's the, like we're we're probably going to do three or four of these total <laughs> and uh, we're still not going to cover everything and a lot of it comes down to the fact and certainly go back and listen to those first two episodes if you haven't it comes down to the fact that we're talking about ancient technology and and since it in we inevitably use technology as a way of understanding ourselves understanding the cosmos etc it ends up becoming a part of our uh, not only our discourse, but of course our religions and uh, and so forth. And we see that with the cauldron for sure. Yes, though I, I have to say one of the big examples we're going to talk about in this episode, I don't know if the whole episode will end up focusing on it, but it's a really interesting historical artifact that is called a cauldron. Like it, it is called the Gundustrup cauldron. Uh, but I was reading a paper on it, and the very first sentence of the paper, this author insists that it is not a cauldron. It is a <laughs> ceremonial container. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is something that is kind of under the surface of, of many of these discussions, right? Like, obviously, not all of these people would have called this a cauldron. And then you get into discussions of, okay, is it a cauldron or a pot? 
Is it a cauldron or a bowl? Is it a cauldron or some other kind? You know, it, 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 what, what exactly is this Chill, thing? Chill, daddy-o. Okay, this yeah. is a cauldron. Come on. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big metal pot. I think we can call it a cauldron. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, as we discussed in previous episodes, we wanted to get into European traditions with the cauldron. And uh, cauldrons in Europe are sometimes uncovered in bogs. Uh, places, uh, as we've discussed in the show before, that had sacred connotations to the ancient people who visited them. They were a place between land and water, and so they were also seen as a place between life and death. So various funeral rites seemed to have been conducted at various bogs and peat bogs, and given the low oxygen, uh, acidic soil of bog environments, we often gain a great deal more insight into what occurred there, especially when it comes to organic materials that would have otherwise decayed. So, you know, bodies were, were left in these bogs, interred in these bogs. And uh, we also see examples of, of cauldrons and cauldron-like artifacts. One notable bog-retrieved cauldron is the Gundestrap cauldron, an incomplete but very stunning silver artifact discovered in a bog in Himmerland, Denmark in 1891. Now, while dating has been a matter of, of some discussion here, exact dating anyway, it is suspected uh, to date back to between 150 BCE and the dawn of the Common Era. Uh, it was evidently given to the bog in an act of sacrifice, perhaps to a god or gods, uh, but its origins uh, don't seem to be quite Danish. It, it bears images that are generally associated with more southern cultures, lions, uh, deer, griffins. Um, there, there seems to be a horned or antlered god on there alongside other potential gods and goddesses. It contains scenes of warriors falling in battle. And there is actually an image of a magic cauldron uh, that is on this cauldron with a gigantic figure, perhaps a god or a goddess, about to dunk a smaller man into its depths. That's right. We got cauldrons on our cauldrons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I want to come back to more uh, interpretation of this panel later on. Yeah, the, definitely, as we're talking about the Gundestrup cauldron, look up images of it. That's spelled G-U-N-D-E-S-T-R-U-P. Uh, there are a lot of images online that show the various panels here, the various, uh, uh, the, the various images that we're going to be discussing here, including this one of what is clearly a giant of some sort, uh, taking a man and dunking him headfirst uh, into uh, a bucket or cauldron or vessel of some sort adjacent to this battle scene. So the exact origins of the cauldron here are still a matter of debate, uh, with some pointing to the Thracians, or what is, uh, and these would have been uh, people from what is now Bulgaria and Romania, yet there are also Celtic helmets and trumpets depicted on the cauldron, suggesting it might have been made in a place in the aforementioned region where Thracians and, and Celts coexisted, though it's uncertain how this then wound up in Denmark. Could have been a tribute, uh, could have been spoils of war. Either way, it may be accurate to think of the Gundestrap cauldron as not a product of a single culture, a single place, or even a single time, but something that was created by mingling cultures on the move, in part due to Roman expansion and conquest during this time period, and ultimately constructed by different artisans over many years. Oh, I didn't think about the Roman connection, but yeah, so if this would have been in the, the first century BCE, and the, the middle of that century was when Julius Caesar himself was waging a war of conquest in, in Gaul against uh, Celtic tribes in that region. 
So yeah, that, that's an interesting possibility. So yeah, Rob, you 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 dug this thing up, uh, not not physically, but yes, you <laughs> yep, you, you hit brought it into our outline. But I got really obsessed with it. Um, yeah, and I I find this artifact so interesting, specifically because of the different mysteries about its uh, its provenance, like you were just talking about, but also about uh, what it's depicting because there there are tons of you know it clearly is showing scenes that are part of a rich mythology that we apparently know little to nothing about and so there are a lot of attempts to try to understand what the different panels are depicting and if and if so how they connect to mythologies that we might know something about uh, but but coming back to that provenance uh, question, yeah, I, I think it's so interesting that there are at least three different distinct sort of regional inputs. Now, as you already mentioned, based on physical characteristics of the cauldron, like the silversmithing techniques that were used to create it, it seems to be a product of southeastern Europe. Yes, most scholars pointing to uh, to the metalworking techniques of the Thracians who live in, as you said, what is today Bulgaria or Romania. And I was trying to figure out what are some uh, examples of this distinctive style that's uh, that's so strongly linked to Thracian culture. Well, I was reading about this on the website for the National Museum of Denmark, which has a, a lot of great materials about the Gundestrup cauldron. And they compared the Gundestrup cauldron to the metalworking on a gilded silver pitcher from Bulgaria from roughly 300 BCE. And looking at it, I would agree, yeah, the techniques and the artistic style look extremely similar. Like the the way the animal figures are embossed. Uh, remember, that this is not just like a, an illustration or a carving, but this is like uh, hammered and punched metal. So it has raised animal figures with like textures that you could feel with your fingers running over them. And those textures are very similar between the the two works. So like uh, the animal figures are embossed and punched with patterns of texture that seem to indicate hair or fur. And it's extremely distinctive. You see some of the same patterns on the, uh, on the apparent herringbone patterns on the clothing of the people on the Gundestrup cauldron. So based on the techniques, it's pretty clear that it was created by an artisan who had been trained in the traditions of Southeastern Europe. But, as you also said, the imagery depicts objects and motifs associated with the culture of the Celts, who were in more kind of uh, Western Central Europe at the time. Uh, and a few examples of this would be a Celtic musical instrument known as the Carnix, which we can discuss in more detail later, uh, certain types of uh, Celtic ceremonial uh, jewelry, such as uh, an object called a torque, which I can also get to in a minute, and things like that. So th those are your two inputs. It's like Celtic subject matter done in the metalworking style of the Thracians or of Southeastern Europe. And then it's found in the territory of neither one. It's found up in mm -hmm. Jutland in modern day Denmark in a bog. So you, yeah, you, you really have to wonder how all this comes together. Like did a Celtic person commission a Southeastern European silversmith to make a pot containing images from their culture and mythology, or maybe did it somehow arise from a border region where these cultures came into contact and then somehow this item ends up in the bogs of Jutland. It would be like finding, what, a, a Bulgarian band that only does covers of Celtic music in <laughs> modern Denmark and wondering, like, how they came to be there. Ah, yes, the thrash metal polka bands of Canada. <laughs> now, I wanted to mention just a little bit more about 
the state that this cauldron, the so-called cauldron, was in when it was discovered. Uh, so altogether, this object weighs about nine kilograms or about 20 pounds, and it appears to have been deposited in the bog deliberately, especially because it was disassembled when it was put into mm. the bog. So this cauldron has many detachable features. So the rim can be taken off. And the silver image panels, which line the sides of the pot, those can be taken off. And when it was found, they were all removed and placed inside the vessel. So I don't know. You see that, and that makes it sound like this wasn't just sort of like, it wasn't like it fell off a wagon or something. Right. It sounds like somebody put it in there. Mm -hmm. There is no text anywhere on it. So it's not like a political cartoon where everything's labeled so you know what it means. It's You, you just have to infer from the imagery. Uh, so, so that makes it difficult to identify things. But the imagery, as you already said, Rob, is, is fascinating. There are animals you would not expect to see. There are lions. Uh, there are images of gods that we know little or nothing about. In fact, there are even images of uh, elephants. Ah, and yeah, that, that should be surprising, especially. Like, where are these images of, of elephants coming from? Yeah, exactly. So at this point, I, I just want to pick out a few of the individual plates and focus on what's going on uh, on them one at a time. So the first one I wanted to look at, I've got a picture for you to look at, Rob, but of course we will describe it for, for you out there, the listener. Uh, so it shows a, a god or a mythic figure that's mostly human in form except it has antlers like a stag growing from its head. And this figure is sitting cross-legged right next to an actual stag. And then on the other side of it, there are a bunch of other animals. There are four-legged uh, predatory-looking animals that might be dogs or maybe lions. I, mm -hmm. I can't tell for sure. And then, I love this, a tiny dude riding on the back of a fish. Yes. Is it is it, now compared to the god with the antlers, the dude is much smaller. But I don't know if it's a question of perspective. Maybe he's farther away, or maybe maybe this is just separate imagery, uh, or maybe the god is supposed to be really big, or maybe the dude's supposed to be really small. I, I can't tell what the deal with the size difference is. But uh, if it is a regular sized man on the fish's back, that is a very big fish. It's got to be like dolphin or shark sized. Yeah, and there's also a, kind of a different flavor to these two images. So the the horned or antlered god or whatever this being is supposed to be is in a has has a kind of a serene pose. Mm -hmm. uh, his legs, his or her legs are crossed, uh, holding a what a serpent in one hand, uh, and I'm not sure what the implement is in the other hand. Oh well, that's uh, that is a Celtic object. Actually, I think this is an object that. Uh is bigger than just Celtic culture, but it was big in Celtic culture called a torque, which is a type of metal ring worn around the neck that seems to have had significance um, for multiple Iron Age European cultures, symbolizing power. It's power mm. or status or rank, sort of like a crown. So if somebody's wearing a torque, that would seem to indicate that they are a leader or a high status person. So this figure with the antlers has the torque in his uh, right hand and then in the other hand, he's grasping, like you said, the neck of a giant snake. But I just wanted to point out that the snake has features on its head, which uh, one scholar I was looking at identified as ram's horns. So it's a oh. snake with ram horns. Oh, wow. 
So the, there's clearly a lot going on here, as as one often finds with depictions of powerful individuals or deities or demigods. Uh, and, and it's one of these images that I think it speaks across the ages. When you look at this, you get a sense of power and divinity from it. Uh, meanwhile, the individual riding the fish or dolphin, I, I it looks more comical to me. And I, yeah. it makes me wonder if there is, in fact, is it supposed to be comical on some level? Like if even if it is a god of some sort, maybe it is a trickster god. Maybe it's something that is uh, not supposed to be interpreted with the same air of reverence as we have with this, uh, this central individual. Yeah, I agree. F- Fishboy looks very funny. And I think it's partly in the way his knees are bent and he's sort of reaching forward while riding the fish, almost as if you can imagine him kind of uh, uh, rocking and kicking back and forth and saying like, go faster, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, obviously another uh, possible uh, explanation for differences could also be different authors over time. Uh, but uh, as we alluded to earlier, but an interesting thing I wanted to point out again, so th- there's a lot we don't know about what these images are supposed to depict, but this antler headed God who is holding a torque in one hand is also wearing a torque around his mm-hmm. neck. So he appears to be a, a leader or high status figure himself, but maybe by holding a torque in one hand, it, I, I don't know, just speculating, but maybe it means he can also make a king. He can also give the crown to another. Mm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but to go on to discuss another panel, Rob, I wanted to come back to one you sort of mentioned earlier, the panel that has the cauldron dunking on it, mm-hmm. uh, because I, this panel is really interesting, and there was some good interpretive material on the uh, National Museum of Denmark website about it. So this is one of the interior wall panels. It's, this would be lining the inner wall of the cauldron, and there's a lot going on on it, so let, mm-hmm. let's try to break it down piece by piece. So one thing is that there is a a row of soldiers on the bottom and they are on foot. They're holding spears and shields and they are moving toward the left side of the panel. And then above them is a straight horizontal tree branch with little uh, leaves uh, forking off of it. And then above the tree branch are soldiers on horseback moving in the opposite direction of the procession below. They are moving to the right side of the panel. And then on the lower right side of the panel, there are three warriors playing instruments that are known as carnices. Uh, when I first looked at these things, I had no idea what they were, but I, I looked them up. And, and these are a well-known type of artifact. Rob, I've got a close-up for you to look at here. But the carnix was a wind instrument used by the Celts of the Iron Age. It is essentially a giant S-shaped trumpet, but... Most of the length of this uh, trumpet is a vertical pipe reaching far up above your head. So picture a kind of long periscope tube, except it's not going to your eye. It's connecting to your mouth and you blow through it. And then the sound comes out of this tube that ends maybe a whole other person's height above your head. Uh, and so uh, the the bell part of this instrument, the part where the sound comes out, would often be shaped to look like an open-jawed head of an animal, such as a dragon or a serpent or maybe sometimes a boar. Mm-hmm. The carnix was identified in ancient literary sources as associated with warfare. So you might play it on the battlefield for coordination of tactics or for intimidation of the enemy. Ah, long-distance communication. There you go. But what's going on with the warriors on the bottom uh, row of the panel? Well, they seem to be moving toward the left side where one by one, they will face a god of some kind depicted as a giant who is, uh, you know, at least twice as big as probably three times as big as the warriors. And the, the god or the giant will grasp a warrior with both hands, turn him upside down, and then dunk him headfirst into a cauldron. <laughs> Now, I think there's plenty of room to question the 
the interpretation of these panels. Uh, again, they don't come with words on them, so they don't explain, and they don't super clearly connect to mythology that we know about, connections that uh, would be established have to be kind of uh, inferred. They might be kind of tenuous. But the curators of the National Museum of Denmark argue that the warriors on foot in the bottom of this panel, they are being represented as probably in the underworld, meaning that they were just killed in battle. And so they're being depicted as, I don't know, the, the dead forms of their former selves. And you can tell they're in the underworld because they are underneath this horizontal tree branch. Uh, apparently the tree branch probably denotes the earth itself and the division between worlds. So if the tree branch is, is the earth, what's below it is the underworld, and what's above it is some kind of heavenly afterlife. And from here, the, uh, the, the interpretation goes on to say that as these figures are dunked into the cauldron by the god, their fate is decided. And this fate might include being resurrected or reincarnated in some exalted state, such as in this heavenly realm up above on the top of the panel, and perhaps as a person of higher status or rank. Uh, remember that the soldiers shown above the branch were on horseback, so maybe this means a fallen warrior could be resurrected as an officer or as a member of the equestrian classes, higher socioeconomic mm. class. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting how this recalls the imagery of cauldrons used in visions of hell in multiple uh, very different Asian cultures that we talked about in the previous part of this series, where the cauldrons were not only an instrument of torture in the realms of hell, but they were secondarily a, a symbol of transformation into something more honorable and refined if you could be reincarnated as a sort of better being after the stint in hell. And it, it makes me think, again, like seeing this motif arise in multiple different cultures separated greatly in time and geography and language and, and all these different barriers – makes one wonder if there's not a common universal human experience underlying that theme, which would seem to me to be very likely the transformation of raw food into cooked food or of dirty clothing into clean clothing as would be just uh, you know, natural things where we see transformed by the work of the cauldron. Yeah. Like the basic nature of, of cauldron technology and the idea that it, it enables transformation. It does seem to be something you just see in culture after culture after culture, uh, just uh, across vast distances on the planet. And the laundry uh, note is good, is important too. I've seen that pop up in a, a few different sources pointing to specific cauldrons of note. Uh, and uh, often discussions regarding that cauldron come back to cooking and the preparation of food, the transformation of of, of, of organic matter into uh, some sort of uh, delicious or hearty dish. Uh, but also sometimes laundry is discussed as a possibility <laughs> as well. And uh, I mean, th that is a transformation we, I think we tend to totally take for granted that you can have, you know, foul and soiled clothing. And yet here is this fabulous specialized cauldron in your house or at the local laundromat or in the basement of your building that you put these items into and you come back later and behold, they have been refreshed. They are, they are <laughs> new again. Yeah, man. Who doesn't love clean laundry, especially clean sheets is a wonderful thing. Oh yeah. Okay. I got another uh, panel I want to focus on. This one's very special and it may be the most important of all of them due to its placement within the cauldron. And that is the panel that is in the bottom of the cauldron bowl. Now, I might not have even noticed this one just by looking at pictures of the plates on the internet because uh, a lot of the photography that's out there focuses on the side plates for mm -hmm. good reason. 
Uh, but I actually saw this one brought up in a curator's video feature from the British Museum that was focused on the Gundestrup cauldron. I think maybe when um, when they had it on loan or something. Uh, but it was by an archaeologist named Julia Farley. And this was really interesting. So th this panel is at the bottom of the pot. So if you're looking down into the pot, it's what you'd see uh, at the very bottom, assuming the pot's empty. And because of that feature, I started to think about how if the pot had something in it, uh, like soup or whatever. I, I don't know if this was ever used to serve soup. Probably not, actually, because more more of a ceremonial vessel. But I don't know. Mm. I guess I couldn't rule that out. Um, if it had anything in it, this panel would be hidden, and then it would be revealed as the contents were taken out of the bowl. Um, so what what do you see in this panel? Well, it depicts a gigantic bull uh, reclining. I, when I first saw it, it looked to me like it was kind of, uh, I don't know, lazily resting, but I've seen it uh, written about as if this bull is laying on the ground because it has been wounded. Mm. Uh, but I couldn't tell that just by looking at it. So for whatever reason, it's a bull laying on its side, but then with its head propped up and the head of the bull is actually a, a very prominently vertically raised 3d feature, technically the whole thing, like the other panels, is 3D. It's all hammered and stamped and embossed into 3D textures, but the head of the bull is sort of more 3D than the rest. Like it really rises into prominence off the base. And then behind the back of the bull, we see a goddess or a female warrior posed with sword raised, and her legs are bent. They're kind of tucked up under her as if she were jumping, like as if she were in midair at the peak of a great leap, and mm. she's going to come down with the sword and strike and slay this giant bull. So it's an action shot. Uh, there are also three dogs in the uh, image. It, it seems two of them seem to be alive and helping this uh, warrior or goddess slay the bull and the other dog appears to be dead. Um, but uh, so something I noticed also about this bull. So it's got this raised head coming up off of the body, turning at an angle. And then the bull has what looked like two holes behind its eyes, exactly where the horns would emerge from. Oh. And I wondered, does this mean that the bull, uh, at some point had some kind of horns. I, I don't know, maybe made of a different material coming out of these holes uh, that may be known. And if so, I just didn't find anything about it. So, so I don't know, but if so, I, I like, I wonder what those horns were. And uh, again, I don't know if this is significant, but if you had anything opaque in the pot, as the pot was emptied, you would first see the bull's raised head coming up out of that opaque material. Uh, but then as more and more was taken out of the pot, as the bottom was revealed, it would reveal the goddess or the female warrior, this person with the sword and her three hounds surrounding the bull ready to strike. And I thought that was a kind of interesting. It's almost like by taking the contents out of this bowl, it would be pulling back the curtain on the dramatic aspect of the scene. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack because on, on one hand, there's just sort of the, I guess, the the basic pleasure to be had in, in this potential scene of like the, the level of soup lowering and revealing horns and then head and then beast. Uh, not unlike some of the novelty mugs you'll find today where there's some sort of a, like, a, I don't know, like a cartoon octopus on the bottom of the mug. <laughs> you, know, you drink half of your hot cocoa and oop, there's a, an octopus peering up at you. Uh, I mean, that alone is fun. That alone transcends time and space. 
but yeah, on top of it, to have this dramatic action scene playing out, and then the question arises, well, then is, is this a story that, uh, that I mean, what, what did, did it play, take place beneath a liquid? Did it take place within a, a cauldron? You know, what is the exact connection? How does having it at the bottom of the cauldron, um, well, what does that illustrate? What does that do? What is the function of that? Yeah, I I love this. Though I, I want to be clear, I'm not I am not arguing that this was used to serve soup. Uh, <laughs> I, do, I don't know of any evidence of that. So I guess we don't know what went into this bowl, if anything. Uh, we don't know exactly how it was used. But uh, another question is, what does the killing of this bull symbolize? Uh, so clearly, this goddess is uh, is you know ready to to bring the sword down on its neck. But we don't know what that act meant, and uh, this is another one of the mysteries of the cauldron. Uh, the National Museum of Denmark page, it has an interpretation that uh, the bull may symbolize chaos, and the woman who is fighting and killing the bull is doing so in order to protect the cosmic order, though uh, I'm not sure exactly what supports that speculation. But I don't know. Yeah, personally, I'm just intoxicated by the mysteries of of. Like, what are the stories that are being told in these little uh, metal comic strip panels with no words on them? Like, we don't mm-hmm. know what the surrounding context is, and uh, and and I, I really wish we could. Yeah, yeah, because they, I mean, the context would have been clear to 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 someone, at least a, a privileged few within the given culture, if not everyone uh, within the given culture. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating, fascinating mystery. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, I was looking up to see if there were any good like papers that were using clues in the images to try to understand better what stories were being told or what the significance of these gods and, and uh, mythic figures were. One paper I found that caught my attention was by a scholar named David Alexander Nance called Plate F on the Gundestrup Cauldron, Symbols of Spring and Fertility, published in a journal called Anthropozoologica in 2019. Anthropozoologica is a journal put out by the French Museum of Natural History uh, that seems to be focusing on the role of non-human animals in the history of humankind. And I looked up Nance. He is a scholar at the University of Aberdeen. Now, specifically, uh, this paper adds, uh, it tries to do a zoological identification of a bird species on one of the plates in order to help elucidate what the, the mythic significance may have been. So Nance notes that on this plate called Plate F, which broadly, I mean, so first of all, it shows this huge face of like a giant figure with long hair and then other depictions of uh, what may be the same figure in like smaller uh, scenes around the big head. And then the big figure with the long hair is holding a bird in its hand. And then there are also birds and I think cats and dogs flanking it in different places. But uh, Nance is specifically looking at the birds and says, Hey, wait a second. The birds on this plate have a very distinctive morphological feature, which is zygodactyly. Zygodactyly is a foot morphology where there are two claws facing forward and two facing backward. And given that characteristic, there are really only a few types of birds it could be. It's obviously not most of them. So, so the only real candidate uh, for this is the common cuckoo or cuculus canoris. And this is interesting because the cuckoo connects to a whole other known nexus of, of mythological significance. So Nance writes, quote, This species is also identified on a number of other widespread European artifacts where it was previously thought to be a bird of prey. The plate depicts a goddess in triplicate flanked by two cuckoos releasing the first cuckoo of spring. The bird is an obligate brood parasite laying its eggs in other birds' nests, leading to misconception 
interruptions of its life cycle. And the uh, the misconceptions about cuckoos in antiquity were that uh, there were no female cuckoos, that there were only males, and the male birds mated with the host females of all the other bird species. Now, that's not true, but apparently uh, Nance argues that that was believed in the ancient world. And for this reason, the cuckoo symbolized male fertility across many different cultures in its uh, summer range. So during the summer months in, in uh, all across Eurasia, this, this bird would fly in and then it would be associated with fertility uh, and sometimes with European fertility goddesses, like the bird might so- sort of be uh, its implied consort. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, that reminds me of various misinterpretations uh, regarding spontaneous uh, generation or uh, the idea that the scarab beetle, you know, the dung beetle emerges from the dung, that it is, uh, that it is a thing that, uh, that, that is born out of, of, uh, of the dirt and of the waste, as opposed to enough a life form that's making use of this material. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So, But to be biologically precise, what is happening with the cuckoos is that they are depositing their own eggs. So cuckoos are mating with cuckoos, and then mm-hmm. they're laying cuckoo eggs. So they're just laying in, in the nests of other birds, and, uh, and the, so that's known as brood parasitism. But because of the confusion uh, of like not seeing them with their own nests, they were just like, yeah, they're only male cuckoos. And they're just, uh, they, they essentially said that they were cuckolding the male birds of other species. Hmm. Yeah, brood, brood parasitism is a, is a fascinating topic. And of course, we see this in the insect world as well. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not certainly but not confined to just uh, these birds. Uh, fascinating topic we could easily come back to. Because they're also, even with the cuckoo, there, as I recall, there are a lot of ins and outs regarding. Um, uh, the enforcement of uh, of this policy, uh, yes, uh, both with actions uh, that have some, are sometimes compared to uh, almost mafia tactics, and <laughs> uh, and also just like the, how does the egg appear, and how is there a like a physical uh, deception or mimicry going on. Yeah, I think there's widely believed to be like just an ongoing evolutionary arms race between the host species' ability to recognize cuckoo eggs and be like, wait a minute, no, and then the cuckoo's ability to adapt to that and further blend in. Mm-hmm. Oh, but sorry, the other thing about the cuckoo that would make it uh, probably associated with, with fertility would be its uh, seasonal migratory patterns, because this is one of the migratory birds that would show up in uh, in uh, northern stretches of Europe and Asia in the summer months. And it was, so it might show up in spring. You would say like, Oh, there's the, there's the first cuckoo of the, of the warm season. And so it would thus be associated also with the regeneration of plants and things like that, having fertility associations for that reason. Anyway, I guess we'll call it there for the Gundestrup cauldron, but uh, I find this such an intriguing artifact. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like every time there's a new paper, uh, uh, providing some, some interpretation of, of what's going on in these panels. I want to know. Yeah, yeah. And and by all means, when you get a chance, you're not driving a vehicle or something, look up images of the Gundestrup cauldron. And certainly if you have access to the Gundestrup cauldron, if you can go see it at a museum uh, uh, now or in the future, uh, please do so. If you can steal it, you know, tuck no, it into no, the britches not, and get it out of there. And, do not uh, yeah. steal the Gundestrup cauldron. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, cauldrons are are also found in rivers, uh, which uh, which is interesting. Uh, rivers also, have, of course, have uh, divine importance in many cultures. And uh, one example is the the Battersea Cauldron that was found in the River River Thames at Battersea in South London. It's a large riveted bronze vessel 
with signs of maintenance over many years, originally crafted an estimated 3,000 years ago. So this would have been a highly advanced example of metalwork from this time period. Now, this cauldron is mentioned in a blog entry on the British Museum website by Jennifer Wexler and Neil Wilkin titled Cauldrons and Flesh Hooks Between the Living and the Dead in Ancient Britain and Ireland. And uh, yeah, they, they also point out an example of a 3,000-year-old flesh hook found in a bog in Northern Ireland. And when complete, when one piece, uh, it would have been a long metal and wood rod decorated with bronze birds. Uh, the hook would have been used in ritual feasting for the purpose of pulling cooked meat from a cauldron. And such tools were also used uh, when working with, with hides and tanning pits and so forth. But this particular artifact uh, also had birds on it, which is pretty interesting. Mm. Uh, I'm going to read just a quote from that uh, uh, British Museum blog post. Quote, the two sets of birds may have represented opposing forces in the world of ancient people. Swans are white birds of the water, but also associated with the sun and light. And the family group suggests fertility because they're depicted in a family group here. The ravens, on the other hand, are blackbirds of the air and divine communication connected with wild uplands. Their dark color and gruesome dietary habits were connected with war and death. These differences may have represented the competing forces of good and evil in the world. But both of them will help you get your meat out of the pot. Yeah, but again, remember the pot is is no mere pot. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, there are no technologies this central to to human existence that don't take on all these other meanings and metaphors and so forth. So the cauldron is, it's where you're cooking your meat. Uh, it's where you may be doing your laundry, but. That uh, cauldron is also the universe. That cauldron is also uh, life itself. It is uh, the whole experience of humanity. Wow, it, that's some profound fondue. Yeah, we didn't even get into fondue. There you go, another <laughs> miniature cauldron. Well, wait, yeah, we did. Come on, flesh. This is basically fondue. You're talking oh, about, well, right? Oh, that's right. You Poke can do it in, meat kind of. I, I guess with fondue, I have so little experience with it. I just instantly think of only cheese and bread, and. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I forget sometimes that there's a richer tradition of, uh, of, of fondue. Uh, I mean, there are also other, you know, wonderful uh, traditions of, uh, you know, communal feasting from heated bowls, uh, you know, uh, Chinese hot pot uh, traditions Ooh, yeah. and all. So, um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and certainly that's a, that's a fun experience if you get a chance to uh, partake of that. I don't think I've ever actually done that, but that's usually with a, um, not with like um uh, like an oil, like you might use to cook in fondue, but that's like a, a, a highly flavored broth in a hot yep, pot. Yeah, a broth. Yeah. And uh, they, they, you can find you know plenty of modern restaurants. In fact, I went to one, I want to say this was in Florida, where not only were, were there, was there a hot pot at your table, but there was also a conveyor belt going through like a little sushi conveyor belt, except instead of sushi, it contained various plated ingredients that you could add to the hot pot. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it was it was quite a parade of of meats and vegetables, but that's another thing worth worth keeping in mind too with these uh, with these cauldrons. You know, it's like this is the pot is this is this thing at the center. It is this thing on the fire. It is the thing that is then communally used. So it, it you can you can easily imagine how it just becomes this hyper magnet for meaning, especially in the ancient world. You know, I keep thinking back to this uh, this plate on the the Gundestrup cauldron, the one where the giant god is dunking the the warriors in the from the underworld into the cauldron. And one thing I can't tell from the image 
is the warrior scared to be dunked or is the warrior excited? Like he's going in head first. You can see he's got one arm sort of raised up, but that it could be like a, Oh no, Oh no, please don't dunk. Or it could be like a wee arms up thing. It's hard to tell. Well, I think if, if you're being manhandled by a God, uh, like this, and you're about to be dunked into a, a cauldron or a vat of some sort, like you should be afraid. I think a certain amount of fear is, uh, is ideal. But then again, if the interpretation is right, this warrior is a, about to maybe be transformed into a, a higher state of existence. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Now, one thing, the uh, sort of capping off our serious discussion here, and to be clear, we will be back in another episode on cauldrons. We have a number of, uh, of wonderful cauldron mythologies to discuss. Uh, we'll also get into a, at least a little bit of Dante's Inferno. But uh, this also brings me back to a recent film we looked at on Weird House Cinema, Jason <laughs> Takes Manhattan. There oh. is a scene where Jason, who, again can be at least loosely compared to various divine and semi-divine beings in, uh, in, in history. Um, he dunks somebody in uh, this vat of like nasty New York water, uh, possible, to- I guess it's not actually toxic sludge, but it looks gross, uh, kill somebody by drowning them, holding them by the feet and dunking them. I think it's supposed to be toxic waste. Is I it? think that is part of the mythology of Jason Takes Manhattan is that New York is full of open steel drums of toxic waste. But don't they we see a bucket later that is clearly labeled toxic waste? <laughs> <laughs> that confuses the matter. I think it's one of the flavors of the soda fountain machines in, in New York. You know, you, you, <laughs> you make you a mix. So you get some new grape and then you get some, some diet Fanta and then you get some, some toxic waste. Oh, okay, fair, fair enough. <laughs> um, now, to be clear, the individual in this movie does not reemerge from the cauldron changed. No. He's just killed in the bed, in the bed, in the in the, the, the the vat or the bucket or, or whatever it was, the barrel. But um, well, but- now now hold on a second. Uh, I would say that the the fact that they are in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. And that we will later see another Friday the 13th movie with an almost exactly the same stock character mm-hmm. may in fact mean that these characters are reincarnated throughout each film and sort of uh, attain new forms. You know, you've always got your your jock hunk, you've always got your nerd, you've always got your, uh, uh, you know, strict older gentleman. Um, you know, they show up again and again. So th- th- this may in fact be a, well, I guess it wouldn't be a transformation. Well, I guess you could argue that, I, I don't know. So first of all, I do have to ask, is this a widely discussed theory no, or is the okay. No, <laughs> I'm just riffing here. No, okay. I say, okay, maybe, maybe a, a bad character gets dunked and then in the next movie, they're reincarnated as a final girl. Okay. Yeah. So they're moving up. There is a transformation. Yeah. And so you, you get the, it's that hierarchy of kill order uh, where you're going to, you either fall down or you ascend upward. Possibly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. You know, it, uh, it's also interesting if you take this just context of, of immersion and rebirth, which we'll get into some more in our next episode. Like you see this in all sorts of films. Uh, like I, I was just thinking of the Star Wars films. Like what happens when a character is, is terribly injured? They go into the Bacta tank. Uh, mm. And what is the Bacta tank? But a kind of magical space cauldron that heals your wounds and allows you to, to reemerge. I just thought that scene was weird. Luke's, Luke's all cut up and he's in that like weird white diaper. Yeah. Yeah. The di- I remember as a kid thinking that was funny. 
<laughs> it, and it really, and it is still funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, a lot of this comes from also baptismal imagery, and we'll we'll discuss that a little bit in the future. I'm also and this uh, also reminded of uh, a scene, particularly in the film adaptation, the 1986 adaptation of Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, in which I believe the second murder has been committed, and the body is found immersed in a vat of pig's blood that uh, the blood that is going to be processed into sausage. Uh, and of course, that's a, that's a wonderfully terrifying image I remember, especially from the movie trailer that I watched as a child, because here's this cauldron of blood and two legs sticking out of it. Uh, and, and even that, there's so much uh, so much going on there, because here's the cauldron as a vessel of of, of life and death, of food and transformation, but also just uh, here an instrument of murder for some deranged individual who's causing chaos at the Abbey. Okay, I think we must cease cauldroning for today, but there will be one more cauldron. Yes, and uh, like I say, it should be a fun one. We'll get into some more uh, mythologies. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit of Dante and who knows what else. All right. In the meantime, uh, again, if, if you didn't listen to those first two episodes on The Cauldron, go back and listen to those. There's a lot of good, good content there. Uh, join us for the next episode. Core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind published on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we usually do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we usually do a Monster Fact or Artifact episode. That's a short form episode. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and we just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.